0: listen, you might have missed it. You shall not murder. It's interesting, actually, in the Hebrew, it's only two words. Lo, ratzak, ratzak, lo, ratzak. Uh, lo meaning don't, never, no, ratzak, you murder. Now in the Hebrew, it's kind of interesting. There's actually seven words for killing, right? Seven different words that represent killing. And uh, ratzak specifically, as the, a word that's used in Exodus twenty four verse 13, is do not murder, not murder, or slay with a premeditated intent. So you went into the situation with a premeditated intent. That's what's condemned is you should not, in a premeditated way, murder anyone. This is not condemning killing in general, because if you read the Old Testament, the fact is sometimes God calls the people of Israel to kill their enemies because they have foreign gods, these foreign nations, and they're, he's concerned about the people of Israel chasing after these foreign gods. And so he says, as you enter the promised land, you need to wipe them out, right? Or if you continue to read Exodus 20, you just go, two more chapters over Exodus 22, it's, uh, that we're told that if, if, if a, a robber comes into your place to, to rob you, you have every right to kill them, to defend your home. Or if you continue to read through the Old Testament, you're going to find that there's capital punishment, uh, the way that they did justice back in the Old Testament. You know, it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And if if someone killed somebody, then they had the right to be killed as an act of punishment, capital punishment. So it's not condemning all forms of killing, like you would have in warfare or might have with capital punishment. What it's condemning is murder specifically that is premeditated, that's planned, that's on purpose. We are not to razzak anyone. That's pretty easy to say, right? I mean, I have no plans of doing that. I've never done that, so I'm good, right? I don't need to think about this. Sermon over, right? Uh, But then you need to read the Sermon on the Mount, the words of Jesus. It's the most famous sermon ever preached. As you read the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to find that Jesus challenges you and me and all of us to realize that, well, as Kelly pointed out so beautifully, murder isn't just about what happens out here. It's about what happens in here that murder actually begins in the heart. In fact, Jesus, throughout his teaching, points out that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And there's an interesting scene in Matthew chapter 15 specifically where Jesus' disciples are eating with unwashed hands. They haven't washed their hands, as was the custom of the elders. And so the elders kind of approach Jesus. and go, hey, why aren't your disciples washing their hands? Don't they know that if they eat with unwashed hands, they'll defile themselves? And Jesus has to correct a really bad theology and say, no, 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 it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, rather it's what comes out of a person. And then he explains in more detail in Matthew 15, verses 18 to 20, we have these words. Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, Theft, false witness, slander, these are what defile a person. It's what's in our hearts that defiles us. And so what we need to do is learn how to manage our hearts in such a way that we don't allow these evil thoughts or murder in our hearts or sexual immorality. So how can we do that exactly? Well, I would encourage you to turn your Bibles or iPhones or Androids or whatever you use to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, 21 to 26, Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 to 26. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his word. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we want to have transformed hearts where we don't even allow anger to, to brew in our hearts, but rather we seek to be instruments of your love. So God, as we read these familiar words, we pray that you might speak to us, that we might hear from you that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. Listen to God's word. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades. but The word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's look again at those first few verses. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, Exodus 20, verse 13. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Anybody ever been angry before? Anyone angry? Okay. Anyone even lie before? We've all been angry, right? We've all been angry, right? You can all raise your hand on that. Like, yes, I've been angry. And, and anger in itself is not necessarily uh, bad. It's actually a physiological response to an outside stimulus. In fact, there's a really good book. Uh, Before he did eHarmony, Neil Clark Warren wrote this book called Make Anger Your Ally. And uh, if you don't have it, it's really good. I I, I read it, and it's a really good book because it talks about how anger is something that is is simply an emotional response to an outside stimulus. And the idea is that, you know, we have this little part of our brain called the amygdala. It's like right in the middle. It's like the size of a walnut. And when we're feeling either hurt or frustrated or fearful, our amygdala kicks off, and we have this rush of adrenaline. We find ourselves becoming angry. And in his book, he has some pretty wise words. He says, anger is not a primary emotion, but is typically experienced as an almost automatic inner response to hurt, frustration, or fear. Anger is physiological arousal. It's nothing more. And he goes on to explain how we we use our anger is learned. If we grew up in a house where there was yelling when someone got angry, chances are we're probably going to yell, right? But the good news is, the expression of anger can come under your control. And he points out that, you know, in this book, that, you know, obviously there's times where we're going to get angry, and we have to ask ourselves, rather than bursting out in anger, because if you're, like, grew up in a house where there might have been some yelling, I had some yelling in my home, the impulse would be the yell, it's like, hey, don't yell. What can we do? Well, first we need to breathe. When we find ourselves becoming angry and getting worked up and our amygdala is firing off and we're getting this rush of adrenaline, we need to breathe. And I would say we need to Pray. We need to pray for God to to help us understand what's going on with us. Why are we getting so angry? And he has a really good question in the book. He says, we should ask ourselves, why am I so angry? Am I hurt? Am I fearful? Or am I frustrated? Now, I don't know about you, but I typically get angry because, well, I'm frustrated. I have certain expectations that are not being met, and so I become frustrated. For instance, a pretty easy example is I have a family, you know, it's a family of five, a household of five, and, and, you know, I like to be on time to things. And that's not always easy in a family of five. If you have a large family, you understand the challenge. And, and I have done a pretty good job, I think, of communicating, even an hour in advance. Guys, we need to leave in an hour. We need, I'll even say the time. We need to leave at 5.30, all right, in order to get to where we need to be on time, right? I'll even say, hey guys, we need to leave at 8 a.m. in the morning, okay? Everybody ready for that? We're going to leave at 8 a.m. So I, mean, I make it very clear. But inevitably, as we're getting in the car, there's always one person missing. And I get frustrated, because I have this expectation we're going to be on time. Well, he points out that maybe one thing we should do is maybe temper our expectations. Maybe we can change that. Like think through, like, you know, taking some breath, breathing, and then thinking, if we're late, what will happen? If we're late to the movie, we might miss a preview. That's okay. If we're late to, you know, dinner, well, okay, but we'll still get to eat, right? If we're late to grandma's house, They'll still be there. It'll probably be okay, right? So we have to temper ourselves and say, what's the worst case scenario? Well, we might be five, ten, a few minutes late. It's going to be okay. Now, another thing we could do is we find ourselves becoming angry because maybe we're fearful. We get anxious. We're fearful. We're worried about something. For instance, about every two or four years, there's like this real fear that fills our country because we're all worried about the election. And we have this fearful thought. What if the wrong person gets elected? And the fact is, when we begin to feel fearful, we need to ask ourselves, is this a rational fear or an irrational fear? For instance, in 1992, and many of y'all know I'm from Midland, Texas, home of George W. Bush. And so in 1992, his father, George Herbert Walker Bush, was running for re-election. And I remember in 1988 actually campaigning for George Herbert Walker Bush because he came to Midland. That was the coolest thing. I actually got to shake his hand. I was like, oh, man, I'm never going to wash this thing. That was the coolest thing. And he was president, he defeated Dukakis, the guy from Massachusetts, you know, Taxachusetts is my uncle who lives there, used to call it. I was like, well, that's good, you know, and, and I thought Bush did a pretty good job, you know, Desert Storm was good, the fall of the Soviet empire, you know, that was good. So I was like, there's some good things that happened, so this guy deserves re-election. But in 1992, we had this other candidate from, from Arkansas, I'm like, who wants to elect someone from Arkansas, Right. It's like the, on the t- states, you know, like the 10 states, it's one of the 10 poorest states every year, Arkansas. I was like, how are, how are we elect a governor from Arkansas? And it, it, he was known to be a flanderer, right? Like that was known to be going on in Arkansas. I was like, we don't want a guy like that. I mean, the moral fiber of this country will fall apart. The economy will get worse if we elect a guy from Arkansas who already has a bad economy. Why would we want to elect a guy from Arkansas? Bill Clinton got elected from Arkansas, lost the election. I was angry about it, right? Frustrated. But looking back... He was a Flander. But looking back, the economy actually did okay. We survived. The country didn't fall apart. I had an irrational fear about this outcome. When we find ourselves becoming fearful, we have to ask ourselves, is this a rational fear I have about an election? Or is this a rational fear I have about spiders? Is this a rational fear I have about heights? I mean, we need to ask ourselves, is this a rational fear? Now, Now, if it's a rational fear, if we're in real danger, Well, that amygdala is going off for a reason you know it's the fight-or-flight response so probably should flee to get out of the situation or you have to defend yourself right so that's okay but sometimes our anger can be caused by hurt hurt maybe someone's yelling at you ever been yelled at before anybody i've been yelled at a few times even here and uh it's funny i was in a meeting several years ago i laugh about it now so uh, i was in a meeting uh several years ago and we were in this meeting kind of in a circle meeting And uh, people were kind of venting their frustration about the direction a particular worship service was going. And so I was getting yelled at, right? I'm getting yelled at by this person. I'm like, okay, and I'm trying to think, and my natural human response is to yell back, right? My amygdala response, right? Because I kind of grew up in a house where there's some yelling, so I'm I'm pretty good at yelling. I can get pretty loud. I was ready to yell back, right? But then I knew that that probably wasn't what God wanted me to do. And so having read this book, thanks be to God, I prayed. I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm getting yelled at here. i am being told my sermons are a buzzkill. That's very hurtful. I don't like that. I can defend myself, but what do you want me to do? I started praying. Well, literally, the words of James, chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, came to mind. The words of James, the brother of Jesus, in his epistle, he tells us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So I started praying those words. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And so what I tried to do is I tried to focus on listening rather than yelling and I listened to their complaint, and I wrote it down. Sermon, buzzkill, you know, and I, I took note of that, and then I listened to other complaints. I wrote that all down, and then I said, hey, what I hear you're saying is, set it down, I would repeat, reflect back what they said. Am I understanding you? Go, yeah, that's right, okay. Well, hey, I'm gonna pray about that. Thank you for your help. Again, when we find ourselves becoming angry, we have to say, I'm being hurt here. Is this accusation true? Is this help, something that should define me? or maybe I need to put it in perspective. We need to pray. We need to pray that God would guide us when we find ourselves becoming angry, when we find our emotions raging out of control. In fact, it's important to recognize, uh, you know, that uh, in, in our anger, you know, we don't wanna sin. Uh, and, and what I love about this book is he points out that if we can harness our anger and get control of it, it can actually be used for some really good things. He tells the story in the, in the book about this woman named Deborah Labalestriar. I'll just call her Debbie. She was an elderly woman, and she was living in Los Angeles. And she was really anxious, fearful about the crime rate in her neighborhood was going up. And it, it reached its pinnacle because one time she saw these three teenage boys trying to steal the car of her neighbor well, she's an elderly woman, right? So she's kind of a small woman, but she remembers what Teddy Roosevelt said about a big stick, right? So she found a big stick and she chased the boys off, right, with this big stick and she yelled at them and said, hey, this is inappropriate. Well, these guys, uh, they all, you know, they all scurried away and she was so angry and so worked up about it. She said, what am I to do in this situation? Well, rather than simply stewing in her anger, what did she do? She went to the police and she began to explain the situation and they began to coach her and say, well, why don't you build a neighborhood watch group? And so they did that. They built this neighborhood watch group. It was a glorious thing as they built this neighborhood watch group and the crime fell immediately in that neighborhood. How might we use our anger for good? In fact, Paul explained in his letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter four, that yes, we will get angry. And in Ephesians 4, 26 to 27, he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Be angry and do not sin. You're going to have that emotional response to some stimulus, whether it be fear or hurt or, or, a, or, or, a, or a frustration. But in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the devil take a foothold. Don't let the sun set on your anger. And the point that Paul's making is we've got to deal with our anger immediately. Now, sometimes, I just real quick to the couples out there, sometimes we read this and go, well, I can't go to bed angry with my spouse. Well, if it's already like 11.30 at night and you're already kind of angry, maybe it's good to sleep so you can cool off and then talk in the morning about it. But you don't want to stew in anger. You don't want to allow that to continue to stew in your life. In fact, it's very interesting in uh, Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, the word that is used for uh, anger here about don't be angry, it's uh, orgiso, being angry. It's the present passive anger participle. Literally, it means don't continue in your anger. Don't allow it to continue to stew within your heart. Don't ruminate on your anger. In fact, St. Augustine is uh, famously credited for saying, resentment, you know, holding on to anger, is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. It does us no good to hold on to anger. We've got to let it go. We're called to live, not as the type of people who harbor anger, but the type of people who well, who love our neighbor as ourselves. If you've been with us the last several weeks, you know we've been going through a sermon series uh, called How to Live Out the Jesus Creed, loving God with all that we are and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And this comes from Matthew 22 where Jesus is asked by a, a lawyer, an expert in the law, a Pharisee, and he asks Jesus, what's the great commandment? And Jesus explains to him, quoting the Shema, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then Jesus quotes Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It says, and the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus explains that all the commandments hang on these two commandments. All 613 can be summarized by these two. Love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus did a wonderful job of showing us how to love our neighbor. Even if we get angry. And, and if there's somebody who had a had a right to hold a grudge against anybody, man, it would have been it would have been Jesus, right? You remember the story, right? Jesus is telling his disciples before he's arrested that they're all gonna they're all gonna abandon him. And what does Peter say, the lead disciple? Hey, Jesus, these guys, they may be flaky, they may abandon you, but I will never abandon you. I will be with you to the end. And then what does Jesus say to uh to Peter, truly I tell you before the cock crows, you'll deny knowing me three times. Remember what happens, right? Jesus is arrested, his disciples abandon him, they go off in hiding, but not Peter. He kind of hangs close and he's near Jesus as he's at the uh, house of the high, great high priest. And while he's in the courtyard, there he's able to hear what's going on, trying to see what's gonna happen next to, to Jesus. And then this woman, while they're around the fire, accuses Peter of, of being one of the disciples. And he says, no, I'm not the man. Then another person accuses him, aren't you from Galilee? No, no, I'm not the man. I don't know Jesus. I don't know him. And he says it three times that he denies knowing Jesus. And then he hears the cock crow. And we're told in Luke that Jesus turns and looks at Peter in that moment. And Peter realizes that he's done just what Jesus said he would do, that he denied knowing him three times. Peter leaves the courtyard weeping bitterly in great guilt and great shame. And then what happens? Well, Jesus is crucified, as we know. And notice that while Jesus is being crucified on the cross, he prays. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If we have angry feelings towards someone, we should pray. We should pray that, pray for that person. Pray that God would give us a heart of forgiveness as he's forgiven us time and time again. May we be able to forgive this person. Pray that God would help us to see them as, as God sees them. You know, I was sharing earlier, uh, back in 92, I was all angry about Bill Clinton getting elected president and stuff. And uh, one of my Bible study leaders actually convicted me. He challenged me that, yeah, the election was lost, but what I should do is I should start praying for Bill Clinton. I'm like, what, you kidding me? I wouldn't even vote for him. Vote, pray for him. (laughs) And then he took me to the word of God, right? Which is like sharper than a double-edged sword. It's gonna cut, penetrate to dividing soul and spirit. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse one to two. It says, first of all, then, I urge you, That supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way." Prayers for all people, for kings. Now who was the king or who was the emperor of Rome when Paul wrote this? Nero. Nero was a crazy king. In fact, in 64 AD, he begins to persecute the Christians in Rome. He blames them for the fire, He has both Peter and Paul killed as a part of his persecution of the Christians. And yet Paul instructs us to pray for guys like Nero, a complete jerk. Why? Continue reading 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 to 4. We read these words. This is good. Good to pray for these people. Good for being people of peace. And it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What if every world leader became a faithful follower of Jesus. I think our world will look a lot different right now. Now I know right now that our our world is actually under some pretty tense moments. Uh, The Russian army has surrounded Ukraine. And if you're on Facebook, you may have seen this picture of these Christians in Ukraine in the snow on their knees, fasting and praying for peace. And we're called to be people of peace. They're, They're praying for their enemies. They're praying for the Russians that are right across the border who are threatening to attack them. We need to be praying, praying for peace, we need to pray for our own president, even if you didn't vote for him. We pray for our leaders. We need to pray for Vladimir Putin. We need to pray for, for God to, to do a work in everyone's life so that their eyes might be open. And they see that we are called to be people of peace, not war. God has called us to be peacemakers. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. We need to pray. And if someone is, if we're angry with someone, the best way to get rid of that anger is to pray for them. It's hard to stay angry at someone that you're praying for. Of course, for me personally, the bigger challenge in this text, because I've kind of learned how to pray for people who are angry at me, like when I got yelled at, I just prayed for the person, kind of move on with that. But then the bigger challenge for me is verse 23 to 26. It says this, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. It's easy for me to forgive someone who's hurt me, but I'm not always aware of when someone is angry with me. I'm not always aware when I've hurt them. I certainly don't try to hurt anybody, but I've certainly done that in the past. Uh, one of the bad habits I have is I'm kind of a person who likes to get a lot of stuff done, and so I'm often in a hurry. And so I may be like in the hallway here kind of walking quick to class or walking to worship or whatever, and, and I might just wave. But I don't really talk to somebody, and they may feel snubbed by it, and I didn't know that, you know, and I've hurt their feelings. I'm like, oh, man, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. And I'm just on the way trying to get to where I need to go. And I don't like to ask the question, how are you doing, if I don't have time to listen, right? So I'm just kind of moving, right? And sometimes we can hurt people and have no idea that we've hurt them. And so the onus, again, is on, notice it says, a brother. Be reconciled to your brother. As brothers and sisters in Christ, as as those who have been forgiven by Christ, we know that, well, if someone sins against us, Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, that we should go to that person and tell them how they've hurt us. And I found there's a real good way with nonviolent communication where it's this, this basic pattern of when this happened, you know, uh, w- when you said my sermons were a buzzkill, right? That was happened. No one's going to deny that happened. Uh, I felt hurt because I work hard on my sermons and I want to know that you appreciate the effort, right? Or something like that, you know? So you, you kind of lay out what you want. So please don't use those words in front of other people or something. I don't know. But you, you basically explain how that made you feel and what it is you need. But, of course, we know from the Sermon on the Mount that before I t- look at the speck in one person's eye, I need to take the log out of my own eye. So we need to explain and and apologize for whatever we can, however we've contributed to this conflict. So if you learn that someone's upset with you, first thing to do is go, well, did I do something to contribute to that feeling they have? And if we're not really sure, then we just need to focus on listening. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Sit down with them and say, hey, I've obviously hurt you, didn't intend to. Could you please explain to me what I did? I, I really wasn't aware of that, you know. And then listen and apologize for as much as you can. Take that log out. Say, man, I'm really sorry. Not my intention. And if we lead with an apology, with another brother or sister in Christ, usually an apology will follow. Well, I'm sorry too. I was probably being too sensitive. And it tends to work itself out. But the key is, is, that, is that when we read this, tenth, this sixth commandment and the tenth commandment, you shall not murder, it's not simply saying don't murder someone. We can see from the Sermon on the Mount that what, what Jesus really wants us to do is you should be reconciled. You should be reconciled to those you have conflict you should not be angry with your brother. You should love your brother. After all, we carry a message of reconciliation. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 so beautifully. He challenges the church and all of us to, to live as a new creation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 to 21, we read these words. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. of God. Notice that Paul writes this in Second Corinthians. He had to write a second letter because the first letter didn't didn't do it. Uh, the first letter didn't take. His relationship with the church in Corinth is not a good one. If you read the whole letters, both of them, you'll find that they were beginning to question his apostleship, questioning his leadership. Right. And so Paul doesn't want to give up on that relationship because he loves them and he wants to be reconciled to them because he knows, as I know, as we all know, that if our message of the reconciled love of God is going to have any power, we have to live as reconciled people, reconciling to one another, seeking to bear witness to the forgiveness and love of Christ and the way that we treat each other. As we've been given a great message of reconciliation, for God in his great love for us sent his son all the way from heaven, from the cosmos, here to the earth, to be born as a baby in a lowly manger, to grow up among us, to heal us, and ultimately to die for us. He who is without sin became sin for us when he died on that cross. Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree, we read in Deuteronomy. He became a curse for us so that we could be reconciled to God. We might have a right relationship with God. As we look at Jesus, we can see he's hanging on the cross and he's praying for those who persecute him. And we should do the same. Rather than getting angry, we need to pray for those who've hurt us, who frustrate us we're afraid of we need to pray for them so that our hearts might see them as God does people created in his image people that he loves people that he sent his son to die for may we seek to be people of reconciliation peacemakers who seek to do all that we can to be reconciled to one another not to be angry to be people of love please join me as you pray gracious and loving God I thank you for your word that uh, challenges us to think about what we're calling us to, which is to be reconciled to one another, to be the kind of people who don't stew in our anger, don't allow that anger to develop or continue. But Lord, we, we seek to be the type of people who are quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. We're the kind of people who, who forgive as we've already been forgiven by you. We're the kind of people who try to point to the reconciling love of God by going that extra mile that when we've hurt someone, we, we try to reconcile, we try to apologize, we try to make it right, we try to do all that we can to live at peace with everyone, as far as it's up to us. Oh God, give us wisdom on how to do that this day and every day. your son's and we pray, and all God's people said, Amen.